Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about menopause and cancer with Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. Dr. Minkin is the co-director of the Sexuality, Intimacy, and Menopause Clinic at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Mary Jane, maybe we can start off by kind of setting the scene. How often is menopause and menopausal symptoms uh, an issue for cancer survivors? Are there particular cancers um, that um, really cause these menopausal symptoms? I, I, I can think of at least two, breast and ovarian, that um, may really uh, have an impact here. But can you speak a little bit about um, how common it is to, to go into menopause, either with the treatment of these cancers or um, or, or just as a, as a result of surgery or chemotherapy? Uh, Anise, you bring up all the all of the right situations, and certainly breast and ovarian are the classics. But even something like, for example, a rectal cancer, uh, which one might not think of as a hormonal issue, that if a woman gets radiation therapy um, to her area of her pelvis, that ends up radiating her, you know, ovaries as well, that can put her into menopause. And then, of course, she's dealing with radiation effects to her pelvis, which can impact on vaginal function, things of that nature. And certainly you bring up the uh, issues that uh, certainly surgery, if you take out the ovaries, can uh, lead one menopausal. Even if she's premenopausal, radiation therapy to the pelvis can do it, and many chemotherapeutics can do that by stopping ovarian function, at least temporarily, if not permanently. There are times when a woman will get some chemotherapy and her ovarian action will come back, particularly if she's younger, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, but the good news is, even though menopause can be brought about by all of these situations, uh, there, there are good news on two fronts. First of all, if somebody's going to be having chemo that may impair her ovarian function, and she still wants to have kids, that we can actually now save eggs before she undergoes the therapy uh, for fertility preservation. And we can actually freeze these eggs to when she's ready to use them so that we can preserve fertility. And indeed, even if a woman gets chemotherapy that knocks out her ovarian function uh, and renders her menopausal, that we can often give her uh, estrogen replacement therapy. There are some cancers where, of course, we can't, uh, particularly breast cancer most notably. However, there are many, many cancers in which estrogen therapy is just fine. So, for example, if a woman's had a lymphoma or even had somebody who's had a stem cell transplant, something like that, that estrogen is really quite fine in those circumstances. So, we can restore her and, and save her from menopausal symptoms. Lots of options. And so let's let's talk a little bit about all of those things because I think you bring up so many great um, topics. The first is, you know, especially for premenopausal women, the idea of fertility is so important, but it's something that they really need to be talking to their doctors ahead of time um, to deal with. Is that right? 
The answer is the answer is absolutely yes, and we do encourage young women to speak to their oncologist about saving eggs before undergoing chemotherapy. And many people are panicked, and you know this very well, Anise, that you know they hear the diagnosis cancer. Oh, I've got to get therapy tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. and indeed you want to get therapy promptly, but tomorrow you don't need it. And we usually have time with most cancers to basically do a cycle or two and get a lot of eggs out of somebody that can be preserved, so she doesn't have to have her chemotherapy therapy or radiation therapy immediately, we can get those eggs. So it is something that's really important to talk about uh, before they institute chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Absolutely. And and in those patients, I mean, uh, fertility issues aside, I can just imagine that being tossed into menopause um, kind of like that as a result of your treatment when you're premenopausal beforehand can be rather problematic for patients. Can you can you talk about um, the difference between kind of a surgical menopause versus a natural menopause? Because some people who may be listening may be like, so you go through menopause, you're going to get there someday. Why not? <laughs> as a result of your treatment. Well, you're absolutely right. And indeed, with a natural menopause, the ovaries, and I, I, the term I usually use is poop out. That's what they do. But it's a gradual process for most people. And the transitional phase we refer to as perimenopause. Those are the years leading up to that final menstrual period and the year thereafter. And that can take several years. And it's a gradual decline of ovarian function. So that it's not like one day you have a lot of estrogen on board and one day you don't, which is indeed what happens with, say, surgical menopause or if somebody gets a radiation therapy or, or a big uh, blast of chemotherapy, initially it can be quite, quite disruptive to your hormonal function. And the symptoms are usually more pronounced with a more abrupt change. And of course, the other issue is that our estrogen levels decline over the course of time, even before menopause. So somebody, for example, of 20 or 25 has a lot more estrogen hanging around than somebody who's 45, even though she's not menopausal at 45. So the declines are going on gradually, just as we get older over the course of time, and our bodies are getting used to it. So an abrupt change can be quite disruptive. However, again, um, there are many situations where, for example, if we are taking out ovaries on somebody, that we can actually start estrogen therapy in the recovery room. <laughs> and we've done that on many people. Uh, so, for example, and this is going to sound jarring to folks, uh, we have a, a large program. We have many women who are what we call previvors, women who are, for example, carrying the BRCA gene um, who are just fine but are having their ovaries taken out preventatively. And many of these women are quite young. They'll be women in their 30s or early 40s, again, who are making a good level of estrogen. But in those women, actually, estrogen is not contraindicated. You know, as long as they've not had breast cancer or anything like that, and we're just taking out ovaries sort of as a preventative measure, that we can actually give those women estrogen in the recovery room. We can slap a patch on and they'll be just fine. So there are things that we can do, and we do encourage women to discuss this with their providers before surgical interventions or before chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And talk a little bit, Mary Jane, about the symptoms that people face when they're faced with a a menopause due to treatment, whether it's due to chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. Is this more than just hot flashes? Um, talk Talk a little bit about all of the symptoms that you get with that big lack of estrogen. 
Well, there are a lot of symptoms that are out there that people may or may not understand or realize. For example, as you point out, hot flashes is sort of the classic. You know, you get all hot and then you start sweating and you lose heat and you get cold. However, there are also women who will uh, get problems with sleep. The sleep disruption can be quite a problem for many women. Uh, And then there are symptoms that people don't think about. For example, one common symptom that nobody really uh, thinks about particularly are things like joint aches, muscle aches, a sense of achiness, which can be pretty pervasive. And women won't attribute that to menopause, but indeed that's something that can happen. Women can get symptoms with vaginal dryness, although it's usually a little bit later, isn't one of the initial symptoms, but can be. Women can have bladder issues. People can get leakage of urine or uh, problems with urinary tract infections, all of which can be related to that loss of estrogen. So there are a lot of symptoms that are out there. Um, And uh, I'll make a little plug here if I can, if people want some more information on that, if they can go to my website, which is Madam Overy, M-A-D-A-M-E-O-V-A-R-Y.com. We have several videos and podcasts on there about menopausal transition, particularly menopause for cancer survivors that might be of interest and helpful for them. You know, one of the questions, Mary Jane, is when people get kind of estrogen replacement um, after they've had these therapies, they may be wondering about whether that estrogen replacement increases their risk of subsequent cancers. Oh, that's another excellent question, Nisha. And this is something that that women, I shouldn't say just women, their families are concerned about as well. And the good news is that, for example, in our very young women, uh, like our, for example, our young BRCA people, that we do know actually that they're actually safer off health-wise probably getting the estrogen than not getting the estrogen. Uh, because we've been actually shown with data in some observational studies that the young women who get the estrogen therapy are do not experience an increased risk of breast cancer. Uh, And then the other thing, though, that by giving them estrogen, we are also substantially reducing their risk of getting heart disease or osteoporosis problems or even dementia from not taking estrogen. We know that young women who are deprived of estrogen can run into these certain health problems. So we are actually doing health benefits by giving them the estrogen, not not detracting from their health. Yeah, so something that they clearly need to talk to their doctor about. And the other Absolutely. the other question, of course, and something that people may be a little bit uncomfortable talking to their doctor about is this whole concept of sexuality and the impact of estrogen deprivation on that aspect. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, there are huge issues involved there, Uh, particularly the, the main problem that women face is vaginal dryness which is a very, very common problem. Uh, It's not one of the initial problems. Usually the hot flash usually are more annoying first. The vaginal dryness tends to appear a bit later, but that can be very problematic. The good news is, and to me a problem is something I don't have an answer for, but we got lots of answers. And there are many products over the counter that one can use, which are totally non-hormonal, which are absolutely fine for the vagina. Um, And they're available over the counter, non-hormonal products, suppositories, creams, uh, which are long-acting vaginal moisturizers. Of course, course, the other thing we encourage women to use are lubricants at the time of sex, in addition to using a vaginal moisturizer. Uh, And they are quite effective. The other thing that women should realize is that 
we can actually safely use vaginal estrogen. Vaginal estrogen is a pretty different phenomenon than uh, using systemic estrogen in the form of pills, oral pills, or patches. And we have some very good data um, and some papers put out by the North American Menopause Society uh, and the American College of OBGYNs showing that the amount of estrogen that is absorbed from the vagina is so small that many women who have breast cancer may safely use vaginal estrogen. So if the -the over-the-counter medications aren't helpful enough for the vaginal moisture issue and lubrication, we can actually use vaginal estrogens in most of these women. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, you know, the other, the whole, uh, the other whole aspect, uh, aside from being tossed into menopause, particularly for young cancer survivors, is this whole concept of, you know, kind of the, the emotional aspect, the aspect of, um, you know, not feeling like you were, um, you know, mm-hmm. this, this sense of a, an altered body image, um, altered self-esteem. Talk a little bit about, about how we can help patients through that. Well, it's another excellent point. And indeed, these issues do come up regularly. You know, again, people who have had, uh, you know, a, a significant surgery taken off body parts or people ending up with uh, different ostomies and things like that as a result of their cancer surgery. Uh, and what we always, certainly in our program, and we have a program uh, at Yale, but there are programs in many hospitals around the country who take care of cancer patients who deal with these issues, you know, referred to as things like sexuality, intimacy, and menopause type programs. And as part of these programs, most of them have a psychologist working with them, which is a wonderful, uh, she's a wonderful, he or she's a wonderful adjunct to our team uh, because we discuss these issues. How are you feeling about these changes? Not only these changes going on, how can we make them better, but how are you feeling about it and how can we help you deal with them? So in addition to doing our physical interventions as far as some medications or exercises or things like that that can be helpful, we always want to talk to people about how are they feeling psychologically? And we do like to hook people up with some psychologists who are schooled on these kind of issues to help folks deal with, you know, their new their new body image. How do we deal with those kind of issues? Yeah, so important to really think about the whole patient. Um, and we're going to learn a lot more about how we take care of uh, whole patients um, when they're dealing with menopause with cancer right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mary Jane Minkin. We're talking about menopause and cancer. Now, Mary Jane, right before the break, we were we were talking about the fact that, you know, for many young breast cancer and ovarian cancer survivors to be tossed into menopause when they weren't expecting to be in menopause at the age that they are, um, can take not only an emotional toll, but a real toll on their self-image, their kind of, their whole concept of, of sexuality. And you were mentioning how a psychologist is, is part of the team. Talk a little bit about libido. I mean, this is something that, you know, for, for many uh, cancer survivors, indeed, for many patients in general, it's not generally something that you bring up to your doctor. So do we have ways of dealing with that? Or are people just told to live with it? Well, we try to say, we never say just live with it to just about anything, because I think we have help for just about everything that's out there. So that's that's number one. Um, for example, with libido, the first thing that I discuss when I have a patient who's telling, describing that she's got decreased libido, and I'm delighted our patients bring it up. I'm sorry they're dealing with it, but I'm delighted they bring it up because we can happily chat with it, chat with them and help fix it. The first thing I always tell people is, how's your vagina doing? And many people will look at me and say, well, it's dry and miserable, but that's that's not the issue. And I say, oh, yes, it is. Because the key thing is that, you know, with, with a painful, with painful sex, who, who a normal person would want to have sex if it hurts? That's crazy. So I feel it's my obligation to help them get comfortable, to get a happy, happy, healthy vagina first so that they're comfortable. And indeed, about with half of my patients, when we do get them to comfort vaginally, they'll say, yeah, you know, that was really the problem. It wasn't my lack of libido, it was discomfort. So we really focus in on getting them comfortable. One thing I didn't mention as far as uh, vaginal issues, uh, an, a, a thing we use, an item we use fairly regularly for women with vaginal dryness and problems after uh, cancer, are vaginal dilators, which are readily available. We have them in many different varieties and really can help stretch the vagina to get it back to normal. And even if a woman hasn't been having sexual activity for a number of years, because we do get some women coming to visit us who you know have just been miserable for a long time and finally it's like, okay, it's time to do something. But we can fix just about everybody's vagina. So, you know, with the help of dilators and moisturizers, things like that. So never give up. It's never too late to investigate. But there are plenty of women, though, about half of them that will fix the vagina and they'll be comfortable, totally comfortable, say, yeah, but I still could care less. And that's a different issue. And of course, we do talk with, you know, have them speaking with our psychology folks as far as things like body image and how can you make time together, you know, happier and, and more, you know, enticing more libido. And we do have some medical approaches as well that can be helpful non-hormonal as well as hormonal um, that we can safely use to enhance libido. So there are a lot of things to do and some counseling is very important because again, um, if you haven't um, you know, communicated with your partner for a long time for whatever issues going on, you're not going to really want to have sex with them <laughs> no matter what it is. So you really want to get communication between partners um, enhanced and let them talk about what's going on and why they haven't been feeling like having sex and just bringing things out in the open can be very helpful. Again, and we do have medications, both hormonal and non-hormonal, that can be helpful. 
Yeah. And I think the issue of bringing the partner into the conversation is so important because it does take two to tango. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be, you know, you've just gone through this pretty traumatic event in your life. And that may change other people's perception. They may not know what they can do or can't do Mm -hmm. or be comfortable or not comfortable. Um, So how do you approach the partner? Well, we at our program, and I think in most programs that deal with these issues, we encourage partners to come with the patient that, you know, we can do that. And actually, sometimes that's that's one advantage. I'm, You know, I think telehealth has certain advantages, certain disadvantages, to be sure. But oftentimes we can have a partner, you know, come on board with the telehealth visit. And then we can talk to both people, which is very nice. And, you know, we've, we've talked to partners on many occasions. We also, of course, welcome partners to come with patients to, you know, to physical office visits with us too, um, so that we can talk with everybody and the psychology folks can talk with everybody. And again, we always encourage communications, you know, just talk to each other. You know, sometimes having us there in the middle is a good thing, you know, that we can enhance those channels of communications. But just getting the people to communicate is really a very, very important thing. What do you like? What don't you like? What's going on. Let's talk about it. And it's really, really important and and can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. Speaking of talking about things, though, this whole concept, right, um, is just difficult to bring up. I mean, it's difficult for many patients to to talk about sexuality with their doctors. It's difficult um, for doctors sometimes to ask about um, people's sexual health. Mm -hmm. Um, It's difficult for people to talk about, you know, their feelings about menopause. So, you know, how do you you recommend on both fronts, how do you recommend patients bring it up to their doctors? And what advice do you have for clinicians who might be listening as to how to broach the topic, especially if they're not you and very comfortable with that? Well, if they've been my medical student, they've had me yell at them and say, you got to feel comfortable walking into any patient's room and saying, how's your vagina? Well, maybe not a guy, but anyway, but for your female patients, it's an important topic and we should deal with the vagina just like we deal with heart or lungs or stomach. You know, it's another body organ um, and we want to be comfortable talking about it. It's a very important organ. Um, so I encourage folks. And the other thing is there are a lot of surveys that have been done um, asking patients, you know, do you want to talk about sex? And the old overwhelming majority of patients in these surveys tend to say, yeah, I'd like to talk about sex and I would like my provider to bring it up. That, you know, many people say, oh, well, I don't want to bring it up because my patient will be embarrassed talking about it. No, most, the vast majority of these surveys say the patient really would like to talk about these issues and they really would like you to inquire so that you're doing something to help your patient, not to embarrass your patient. So don't be afraid to go in and say, you know, that these things are going on and that, you know, and there are fancy, for our providers listening, one of the things that people talk about are, the the term is ubiquity questions, to say to a patient, well, you know, many women who have gone through this experience, uh, issues with vaginal dryness, or they experienced issues with hot flashes, or they experienced issues with libido. You know, is this a problem that you're facing and can I help you with it? And just the validation that these problems are real and God knows we know they're real. So if you have the situation validated and posing it to the patient to say, and you know, many women do experience this, has this been a problem for you? And can we talk about it? And can I help you? Just validating it and, and, and bring it into the open is a real value for the patient and for her partner as well. Yeah. So important. 
and, and I think that that's such a nice way to kind of broach the topic that might be uncomfortable on on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I, I think the other thing is, as you kind of, uh, coined it, the, the ubiquity of things, right? So, you know, the, the concept of sexuality, the concept of, of menopause are, are things that are ubiquitous and people, um, people experience these people go through them. So even for people who may not be tossed into menopause as a result of, um, a particular, uh, diagnosis and treatment. So for example, for, for patients who, um, may have cancer and, and, and be going through menopause, but, um, maybe having a, a hard time with it, um, but are still afraid of their risk. So we're now talking about postmenopausal patients. Um, what advice do you have for them? Well, the thing that I can tell folks, first of all, it's it's wonderful these days to be able to talk a little bit about menopause, which is a little less of a taboo topic, I think, than it used to be. I mean, for example, I think people may not realize even Michelle Obama recently made a podcast talking about hot flashes, which I thought was terrific, you know, that the more we get people, you know, famous, uh, elegant people talking about hot flashes and menopause, that sort of validates the discussion in and of itself, which is great. And of course, in our society, one reason people oftentimes don't like to discuss menopause is that menopause goes along with us getting older. As we get older, we're more likely to go through menopause. And we're in a society, unfortunately, where youth is revered instead of uh, people being older and smarter <laughs> gets revered. Whereas in societies where, where the elders are the revered people in a society, they, they're the respected ones. People go to them for knowledge and questions and things like that. Menopausal symptoms actually tend to be much better dealt with than in societies huh. where youth is revered. It's sort of interesting. Um, but if you can have people people talking, being willing to talk about this, that we have therapies. And the other thing, that, the, the important thing to realize, for example, is somebody who is dealing with whatever symptomatology and whenever she's dealing with it, we have many, many options out there for therapy. I mean, yes, hormonal therapy is, is a mainstay of treatment and it works quite well for many people. But if, for example, you're having terrible hot flashes and you're really very anxious about taking any hormonal therapy, we've got lots of options out there which can be quite helpful for symptoms. And we have herbal products out there which work that we can talk about. Um, And then there are medications, for example, something many people may not realize that antidepressants, SSRIs and SNRIs happen to work very well for hot flashes for lots of people. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, Anissa, I don't know if you know this, that the use of antidepressants for hot flashes was actually discovered in men. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It was actually, yeah, it was the folks out at the Mayo Clinic. And they found this out that in men who were being treated with hormonal suppressants such as Lupron, that men would get hot flashes and that they found out that antidepressants, SSRI, seemed to help their hot flashes. So the breast cancer folks actually brought it over from the knowledge that we accrued from the uh, prostate cancer patients. So well, that's pretty nice places. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So anyway, but for example, we, we it was found out sort of serendipitously, but we know that those can be very helpful for high flashes. Another medication that's out there that people say, huh, what? The medication gabapentin, which is used oftentimes by neurologists for pain or seizures, things like that, also has some anti-high flash properties. So there are a lot of different options that we can offer people if they don't want to take hormones. So we have many, many choices and you just, you know, don't be afraid of asking because we've got a lot of options out there. 
Yeah. The the other thing that, that is interesting, and I think many of our listeners may be uh, particularly interested in is, you know, patients often say, listen, I, I don't particularly want another pill in the pill box. And, mm-hmm. you know, the whole concept of, you know, one medication on top of another, but sure. the idea of natural or herbal products that are out there, I mean, there is this burgeoning field of naturopathic mm-hmm. um, kind of complementary therapies. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you might try if you're having menopausal symptoms that are herbal remedies, maybe things that you can get over the counter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are. Um, and indeed, uh, unfortunately, part of the problem is that uh, we do live in the United States, <laughs> which is a problem. Now, why am I saying that? Is that unfortunately, herbal products are not super well regulated in the United States. Um, however, there are many products made in foreign countries where they are pretty well regulated. And in, for example, in Germany and Sweden, they have some very re- well regulated pro- products that are out there that are actually fairly efficacious uh, for raw hot flashes. For example, a, a remedy that's been used in Germany for about 50 years uh, for breast cancer survivors has been uh, black German black cohosh, a product called Remy Femin, which has been out there for over 50 years and works quite well for high flashes. It's actually used in German breast cancer centers regularly. Um, so there are some herbal products, some Swedish pollen extract that's out there. There are a lot of different herbal products which do seem to have some value for people. Um, but again, you just got to be careful what, you know, just because it's an herbal product doesn't necessarily make it good. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I think one of the key messages always is is talk to your doctor um, yep. and, and find out um, how whatever medication, whether it's herbal or, or not, that you're taking um, reacts with the other things that you're on. Exactly. So exactly. Mary Jane, maybe in our, our last minute, you can kind of talk a little bit about um, whether there there are interactions that people should be aware of um, when they're going through cancer treatment um, and some of these uh, products. Uh, are they are they all pretty safe to use when getting other kinds of therapies? Well, that's an excellent question, Anise, and probably the most commonly used product that may be an issue, particularly with hormonal-type interventions, is actually St. John's wort. Uh, we actually know that St. John's wort decreases the effectiveness of birth control pills. So we try to discourage people taking birth control pills from using it. So that's probably the most common one in the herbal armamentarium that can be problematic. Dr. Mary Jane Minkin is co-director of the Sexuality, Intimacy, and Menopause Clinic at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.